Welcome back to the program. When Barack Obama was elected president, we heard lots of loose talk about being a post-racial society, as if a magic pill had somehow taken the issue of race and identity out of our consciousness. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, arguably, we are further behind in erasing the legacy of racial turmoil than other parts of the world. And part of the reason is that we've yet to achieve a shared truth about the American experience of slavery and bigotry. Well, we've done a good job of trying to move beyond that legacy. Like a weed not pulled out from the root, it always comes back to haunt us because of our difficulty in dealing with its true history. That's the history that my guest Chris Tomlinson takes on with respect to his own family in his new book and documentary, Tomlinson Hill. Chris Tomlinson is a business columnist for the Houston Chronicle. For more than 20 years, he's reported from around the world. He served as East African Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. He's reported on wars and disasters across the Middle East and Asia. And it is my pleasure to welcome Chris Tomlinson here to talk about Tomlinson Hill. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Delighted to have you here. This book is really focused on your own family's experience, a family that were slave owners and that has very different versions of what that true history was. Talk a little bit about what you set out to do here. Well, as a child, I grew up, you know, immersed in uh, in the questions of race. Um, it was the early 1970s, and Dallas was still going under undergoing a desegregation of the public schools. Uh, I was among the first students to be bused to achieve integration. And all the while, my grandfather was talking about how our family owned slaves on a plantation called Tomlinson Hill, and they loved it so much that they took Tomlinson as their last name. Um, as an adult, covering nine wars over 14 years, uh, almost all of them driven by bigotry of some form, I began to think a lot more about America's history and my family's potential role in that. And so I thought, what better way to talk about race in America than to look at two families from the same place with the same name, starting from the same economic condition, and to uh, to show them through history as a way to talk about the larger question of, of, of bigotry in the United States. And you talk about the story that your grandfather told. Your father had a very different story, a very different vision of what had transpired. Well, my father understood that there was no such thing as a good slaveholder. You can't hold someone in bondage using violence and, and be good. You know, you could be less brutal, but you couldn't be good. And, and so he cringed whenever my grandfather tried to perpetuate this myth of the good slaveholder and that our family was part of that and that somehow it was okay to have held slaves. Um, so... You know, he focused on the future. He focused uh, on civil rights. He joined some civil rights groups in, in Dallas and, and, and taught me to be more proud, frankly, of, my, of his mother's Swiss-German heritage than of my own, uh, of the Tomlinson Hill heritage. And as you dug deeper into the Tomlinson Hill heritage and, and really began to explore both the white side of the family and the black side of the family, talk a little bit about that exploration and what it was like for you peeling back the layers of the proverbial onion here. Well, it was um, slow going. Um, I relied initially mo on um, on uh, newspaper reports, um, 
federal census records, state and local records, um, you know, marriage, birth, death, that sort of thing. Um, the African-American history was relatively easy to get started because the most famous Tomlinson of all is a, is a former running back for the San Diego Chargers named Ladanian Tomlinson, a future Hall of Famer. Um, and so his fame and the fact that he was from uh, Falls County, where the plantation was, was a good starting place for the black side of the family. Uh, but I found that he experienced the same thing I did. His father didn't want to talk about that part of the family history, and then, so it was his aunts and uncles who really filled out the story and showed that, you know, there were the black and white Tomlinsons were still working together on Tomlinson Hill up until 1974. There's also a mixed race history. Talk a little bit about that. Well, according to the 1860 uh, slave census, there were uh, at least five, as many as eight, mixed-race children uh, listed as slaves on Tomlinson Hill, all of them very young and almost certainly the product of sexual exploitation by the, uh, by the white masters. Um, now, I, I don't have any evidence that any of those children were uh, Ladanians' uh, ancestors. They appear to be other f- families. But it's a, it's a reminder that, um, that, you know, these were people who lived right next to each other and that there was more than just labor exploitation on these, uh, on these slave plantations. Tell us a little bit about your own personal experience in South Africa, covering apartheid, covering truth and reconciliation, and how that shaped your exploration of these issues that we've been talking about. Well, I once went to a um, to a uh, a rally held by the AWB, which was an Afrikaner white supremacist uh, organization. And when I arrived, uh, they heard my accent, and the first thing they asked was if I was from the Ku Klux Klan delegation. And if so, there was VIP seating for me. Um, and, and that was a reminder that when people look at me as a, a white Texan and they hear the accent, you know, the assumption is that I'm going to be somehow bigoted. Um, then after the end of apartheid, I witnessed uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu begin the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he observed that there was no way to put everyone who committed a crime in jail. Uh, but that the only way to reach reconciliation was to agree on a common truth, a common understanding of the past, what happened and why. And that's when I realized that I had been raised with this myth of Southern aristocracy, that I was never taught about what my relatives may or may not have done during the uh, systematic oppression of African Americans in our country. And, and that's why I set out to write the book. And to what extent do you think the fact that we've really never come to grips with that shared truth, that shared history, has shaped racial history in in the South in particular and in the country in general? Well, I believe that we still uh, suffer from the uh, imposed and voluntary segregation that came in the 1890s. You know, the, uh, the, the white communities wanted to keep the blacks away. Um, and frankly, the African Americans, uh, the freedmen and the freedwomen 
understood that they were going to get nowhere trying to integrate white society, and so they set up what they call freedom colonies. And, and Tomlinson Hill uh, became one of those freedom colonies. They built, uh, you know, on the land that they were given as sharecroppers, they built churches and schools, and they educated themselves, and they separated themselves, trying to create a refuge where they would be safe. Um, now, the, the end of formal segregation in the, in the 1950s and 1960s uh, began to break that apart, but we still haven't addressed what happened back then and why black and white society remained so different and so separate. And I think it comes from that era in which whites wanted to keep them away and blacks wanted to have a place where they could be safe. Going back all the way to the Emancipation Proclamation, you can see the confusion in places like Texas about what it really meant and how it was going to play out and the way issues and truth was, was really twisted during that period of time. Well, there were so few Union troops in Texas at the end of the war. Texas was the last state to surrender. It was the last state where the slaves were freed. Uh, and we celebrate that day as Juneteenth, June 19th. Um, and it, and the first thing the Union troops said to the former slaves was, don't go anywhere. Stay where you are. Continue to work for your masters under labor contracts. And the whites thought that meant that maybe the Emancipation Proclamation would be repealed. And so there were some slaveholders that continued to hold blacks into slavery for years uh, after 1865 because they were hoping that maybe uh, Link, once Lincoln was dead that uh, Andrew uh, Johnson would um, repeal the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Talk about your your conversations with Ladanian Tomlinson. He wrote the foreword for this book, we should mention, and his perception of this story. Well, he was one of the last people I spoke to. Um, he and his brother were uh, very reluctant at first to speak to a white man about the history of slavery. Uh, they questioned whether or not I was going to um, make an honest accounting or whether I was just interested in perpetuating this myth of Southern aristocracy. Uh, but when we finally did meet, and I, and I established uh, a sense of trust with him, um, he admitted that you know he was it was difficult because his father had not taught him a lot about his family, and that uh, his father had died in a car accident, and he was still mourning his father. So he was thrilled to find out that you know he came from a long line of black leaders in Falls County, that his grandfather was uh, such an important uh, person that a lot of people thought Tomlinson Hill was named after him. Uh, at least the black portion of the hill. So uh, I, I think he's able to take a lot of pride in, in the history now that he knows it, after spending years fearing that uh, his family history was of nothing but victims. Was there a sense among the, hi among the people and among the history of the hill that it was somehow safer, that it was somehow isolated from the rest of the prob racial problems that were facing the country in the South at the time? Well, the white Tomlinsons who stayed on the Hill, my grandfather left in 1920, but my cousins uh, who were Tomlinson stayed on the Hill until 1983, and they were benevolent towards the descendants of their former slaves. These were 
These were families that had been intermingled and, uh, and had worked together for generations. So they set aside a plot of land where the slave quarters had once been and, uh, and, allow- and set it up for 50 black families. And that's what's called Tomlinson Hill today, is that settlement of black families. And, and they really worked hard to establish a, freedman's colon- a freedom colony where they could be safe, where their children could run up and down the street without worrying about offending a white person or being called names. Um, you know, there were some pretty horrible things going on in the cities at the time. So uh, Ladanian still has memories of being able to go to anyone's house at any time and, and playing with all the children in the sand and, and feeling completely safe. Um, and I, I think that's part of the segregation that we saw in America. Talk about your own family and how they felt about you exploring this, opening up these wounds from the past. Well, my father was very supportive. Um, I think until he realized that the book was going to go past 1965 and include his uh, <laughs> his life as well as mine. Um, my aunt, who who loved her father, my grandfather very much, uh, is uncomfortable, very uncomfortable with with what I found and, and the fact that I'm sharing it. Um, but you know, I no one. I learned as a journalist that no one really likes to to have someone else write about them, uh, particularly in, in an objective way that, that includes the beauty and the warts. Um, and, and so it is, it is a bit of a painful process. I, I've tried to be honest about my own uh, mistakes and my own misunderstandings uh, and my own faults in the book as well, because it really begins with the first white Tomlinson to arrive on the hill in 1854, who was a woman, and uh, it ends with the last Tomlinson on the Hill, who was Ladanian's father, who died in in 2007. Um, So it is a little awkward, but I I think that's that's the kind of honesty that it takes. Uh, If if anyone who's seen a crime drama, uh, the courtroom scenes are painful as people have to admit things that they're uncomfortable with, and, and that's what happens in the book. The other part of it, though, that it exists within, as uncomfortable as it, as it is, as painful as it is, it exists within such different contexts over time. I mean, one of the things you talk about, even with respect to slavery, and, and we think about it in such a different way today, is that, that so many of those that were engaged in it, in, even in, in your family, in the Tomlinson family, that it was a business, that it was really separate and apart from the way and the issues around which we think about it today? Well, you know, the excuse that I keep hearing is that um, my ancestors didn't know any better. But there's a reason why we call slavery America's original sin. I mean, opposition to slavery goes back to the founding of our country. Uh, The the debate uh, in churches and in uh, town halls is an old one. Uh, my relatives had uh, neighbors who were anti-slavery and who operated uh, farms without slave labor. Um, when I read the newspapers, uh, I read a hundred years worth of newspapers for this book, and I saw, you know, in the weekly paper, there was discussion of whether or not slavery was right or wrong, and both sides were well represented. So, uh, it's it's difficult to say that as adults that our ancestors didn't know any better. Uh, I had to come to the painful conclusion that, that my family um, put profit over 
um, over morality in the decisions they made. What role did white supremacists play in all of this? Well, there's a, a wonderful editorial in the uh, Dallas Morning News um, from the day after the Ku Klux Klan marched for the first time through downtown Dallas. And, uh, and the editorial argued that, uh, that there was no need for the Ku Klux Klan in Dallas because white supremacy was so well established in Dallas that, that it was beyond question. Uh, I think we forget that for most of uh, our country's history, white supremacy was, was an accepted fact. It didn't really become something negative until after the Klan fell apart in the early 1930s and people began to question um, the, the validity of the theory. So, um, so, again, I think that's one of those things that we don't face up to, is that, that um, white supremacy was, was accepted fact for, for, most, for most of our ancestors. What, if any, violence did you find as part of this history on Tomlinson Hill? Well, Texas, and Central Texas in particular, um, had a lot of lynchings. Um, I've documented that at least one lynch mob formed on Tomlinson Hill. There were at least uh, five significant lynchings around Tomlinson Hill. Um, my great-grandfather gave an oral history in 1936 where he bragged about uh, a witness, uh, witnessing a lynching and that it was a, a proper form of justice. So, you know, it, violence uh, to make sure that African Americans didn't assert political or economic rights was, was commonplace. And, uh, and the people, like my ancestors at the time, considered it normal and acceptable. When you tell the story of, of the modern-day civil rights struggle, to what extent was that struggle imbued with some of this history that we were talking about, that we've been talking about? Well, I think there was an acknowledgement of the risk of the civil rights movement um, in Texas. You didn't see a lot of the confrontations that you saw elsewhere. Uh, there were a few sit-ins. There were a few marches. But in, in both Dallas and Houston, uh, you know, the cooler heads prevailed. There were, uh, there were committees set up with black and white leaders who, who managed the slow uh, uh, desegregation of uh, lunch counters and, and department stores. And, and um, you know, it's one of the reasons why you know, 20 years after uh, Brown v. Education, uh, Dallas uh, finally began to bus uh, students to achieve desegregation under a federal court order. When you look at this in light of what you saw in South Africa with truth and reconciliation, do you think that there's still a need for something like that here in America? I believe there is, and I, I believe that we're ready to do that. Um, when we talk about a post-racial America, it seems to be only white people <laughs> who suggest <laughs> who make that suggestion, uh, and I think that that tells you all you need to know about our perceive our, our perceptions about where we are as a country. Um, you know, every day I hear someone suggest to me that uh, the past doesn't matter, that 
that they're not responsible for what their ancestors did, and yet uh, they enjoy the benefits. They enjoy uh, the fact that their ancestors did not have to compete with African Americans for jobs, for education, for uh, for opportunities to invest. Um, and when you consider that, you know, my my father was able to uh, attend college while Ladanian's father was a sharecropper as a child, uh, you realize that this is a, uh, an economic disparity that's not that old. It wasn't that long ago. I interviewed a woman who knew her grandfather who had been a slave. So um, those connections are still fresh. Um, our society remains split. And I think the only way that we can navigate a, a future together uh, of equality is to understand and come to a common agreement on, on the past. And Lindanian talks about the prejudice that he encountered even in the NFL in his early days, a place where we don't think of that kind of prejudice today. You know, I had no idea that it was commonplace for football fans to scream racial epithets uh, at players uh, when they score or when they have a successful play. And yet, um, that happened to Ladanian throughout his career, of uh, beginning in high school. Um, you know, I I think that's one of those things that you know people who attend these NFL games don't talk about. Uh, but it happens, and he say, he saw it more as a tool to uh, get under his skin to make him play uh, worse to somehow hurt his game. Um, and and he wouldn't allow that to get inside his head uh, because he knew that by by performing it at, at, by performing his best um, that was the best way to get back at them. And how has this story finally gotten inside of your head? How has this changed your perception of of your world? I see the world in a slightly different eyes. I think I have greater compassion. Um, I can see the legacy of slavery everywhere I look now. Uh, the, uh, the cotton exchange is uh, two blocks away from uh, my office here in Houston, and that's where my family's cotton was sold. And, and, and you know, I, cotton still has contributed more to the Texas economy over time than oil or cattle. Um, so it's a, um, it, it's, a, it's a new perspective, and, and it's a more compassionate one, I think, and um, and it's one that recognize and I recognize now the advantages that I've had because of the color of my skin. And you know, while I don't need to apologize for what my ancestors did, I, I have no culpability. Uh, I do have a responsibility to acknowledge that uh, the advantages I have today are have a lot to do with the color of my skin. Chris Tomlinson. His book is Tomlinson Hill, the remarkable story of two families who share the Tomlinson name, one white, one black. Chris, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 